This podcast is reserved for audiences 18 years and older. Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Today's guest has been in the leather community for 30 years. She's a professional dominatrix and is the owner and headmistress of Sanctuary Studios LAX. Get ready for some more Leather Talk. This is Brandon, your Mr. Bullet Leather 2020, and today we have Mistress Cyan. Hi, Mistress Cyan. Hi, Brandon. How's it going today? It's going great, actually. Excited to be here. Yeah, me too. Me too. (laughs) Well, Mistress Cyan, for those who may not be familiar with who you are, could you give us a little, tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Mistress Cyan. I've been in the community for much longer than the internet has been around. I'm 67 years old. Um, transgender woman, uh, professional dominatrix. I've uh, identify as she, hers. Um, I can take and tell you a little bit that about um, my experience as the scene tonight. But I came into it, um, like I said before, there was an internet. And now, like 30 years later, I'm active in the community as far as like uh, the owner of Sanctuary Studios, LAX, which is the largest uh, dungeon here in Los Angeles. I'm the founder and executive producer for DomCon, which is a uh, professional and lifestyle domination convention that's held twice a year. And we just finished our LA show last week on our 18th year. I serve on the board of directors for LA Leather Coalition and on the board of directors for LA Pride. So can I give you a little bit of background on myself there. All right. Awesome. Awesome. We're definitely going to be talking with you a little bit more about Sanctuary and DomCon. Um, I always like to start off, though, with a little bit of a, an origin story. Um, so I'm curious to know where you grew up. Are you a SoCal girl all the way or <laughs> where were you born? I was born in New Orleans. Oh, wow. Louisiana. And uh, my, uh, my, my father and his uh, family... Uh, I had been in New Orleans for a number of generations. My mom was born in Belfast, Ireland. And we moved out to Los Angeles when I was about seven years old, which makes it about 60 years ago. So I've seen some uh, progress here in Southern California. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, wow. Oh, my gosh. You said you identify as transgender. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So what was that journey like for you, like someone who came from New Orleans to Los Angeles? I mean, what was that journey like? Uh, Well, we moved out here when I was like seven years old, and uh, I didn't really uh, know much about, you know, where my my destination was going to be or my future or anything else. But growing up, you know, my brother and I, we played with the neighborhood kids, you know, cops and robbers. 
um, cowboys and Indians, those kind of things. But I always had this interest in bondage, you know, like capturing somebody and tying them up or, or, or being captured and being tied up and never thought anything of it. Um, as watching television, there was a, uh, a two-part series weekly of Batman. And it seemed like, you know, whenever Batman and Robin would get caught by the villain, you know, they would never get, like, shot or stabbed or something. They'd always be in some kind of predicament bondage in, <laughs> in um, the first episode. And I always thought that was so exciting, you know, that they'd always be, you know, tied up or in some kind of predicament. Um, later on in life, <laughs> when I started discovering what this, uh, this community and this world was, uh, it started to make sense. Mm. I, I do believe that... Uh, being kinky is something that uh, that's kind of part of you and actually my personal belief is probably part of everybody's whether it's suppressed or not mm-hmm. but um, growing up in the um, in the late 60s and 70s the world was much different than it is now you know being gay was not something that was uh, very acceptable and I knew there was something about me that was a little bit different and uh, I saw a movie when I was younger, um, called the Christine Jorgensen story. And when I looked at that movie and saw that, I mean, I thought, oh my God, that's me. And it honestly scared the crap out of me, you know, (laughs) and I really went into denial um, from that point through, so through junior high and high school and college, um, I went the full, proved my masculinity way. You know, I did sports, you know, played football, I played basketball, uh, running track and cross country. I excelled at. I did. I wasn't a natural at it, but I worked like worked out like twice a day, and ended up by the time my senior year, I led the league and went to state finals. So it's always overachieving in that one. But yeah. to tell you how much of a burden that is that was back in the you know late sixties or early seventies, is that uh, for our cross country team we had a uh, a girls uh, pep squad that could do like fundraising for the team and so on and they would do these fundraisers to pay for like the trophies and everything that they would give out or uh, give us at the end of the year and I was all excited about um, getting it because I had high points I was getting most valuable that and I was I was excited but before they gave out all the awards they did some little little gag ones right and um, they gave me best legs <laughs> and oh my god did I, in the back of my mind I'm thinking oh my god I, I, somebody I, figured it out you know and I was oh, oh my god wow. I was so embarrassed and it was nothing absolutely yeah. nothing okay it had nothing to do with your sexuality they no. were just being silly but you you yeah. know you're your own worst enemy yeah. in those days and that uh, and I remember as a kid our one of our, our next door neighbor moved out and the people who moved in next were two men hmm. and all in the neighborhood, it was always the people whispering, oh, those, those homos, or, you know, I think they're queer, and stuff, you know? So, you know, here I am growing up going, oh my God, I you know, can't take and come out. So everything yeah. was always really hidden uh, until the 90s when I decided that it was time that I needed to come out. Really? Wow. So, I mean, I can't even imagine what it was like during the 60s and the 70s. I mean, that's part of the reason why we have like the hanky codes and everything like that right mm-hmm. because it had to all kind of be in secret and behind closed doors and in dungeons and <laughs> oh, yeah and I mean I've had the um, 
the honor of being able to know people like Ron Nevis and stuff, who Mr. Ashram West, um, I, whether I think 2005, mm. uh, you know, who related the stories of growing up in uh, in Los Angeles and New York when you couldn't hold hands without getting arrested. Oh wow! You couldn't, uh, if um, as far as being transgender goes, that was out of the question because there was a law that said if you uh, if you were wearing uh, more than like two items of the opposite sex, you could be arrested. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really something. wasn't quite as bad when, you know, in the late in the mid mid late seventies when I was coming up. Uh, but I, I think I hit it pretty well too. <laughs> now, at that point in time, was there a distinction? I mean, at at least a general understanding of distinction between like someone who is like who cross dresses versus somebody who is actually like transgender, or was that kind of all just in the same ballpark of being gay and queer and? Um, it was actually, it's funny, back in, um, during that time, the transgender really wasn't, wasn't used very much because, mm -hmm. uh, uh, they, the term transvestite was used for someone who cross-dressed. The, uh, if someone was going to change their sex or their, their gender identity, then they were transsexual. Mm. And kind of transgender evolved, at least in my experience, transgender evolved uh, in the late, I think it was 1990s, early 2000s, where people started to say, well, if you were going through with the surgery, then you were transsexual. But if you were going to live in the opposite role but not have the surgery, then you were transgender. And it's kind of over the years become a, a catch-all. Got it, got it. And I know I told you at the beginning of the episode to avoid political topics, and here I am about to ask you possibly a political question. Um, but I have spoken with friends from older generations, and we've talked about language and how terms have changed over time. And And I apologize ahead of time for the words I'm going to mention right now. Please know that I'm not meaning this as an offense by any means. Um, but I am genuinely curious to know if words like transvestite and tranny, for example, like those words seem to me much older terms than transgender, for example. Were those words always offensive or did the scope of how we use those words and how they're viewed change over time? I recall it always being fairly um, offensive, um, uh -huh. but it's a little bit more now. I think uh, our days uh, in this era that people are a little bit more conscious about being politically correct. Uh -huh. and Because, uh, I, I mean, coming from my generation, the one term that was very offensive that's used <clears throat> pretty commonly now is queer. Mm. Oh, that, was, that was like saying the N-word. Okay. Oh, wow. That was a very, very derogatory. It's, uh, you know, if somebody uh, called you queer or a queer or something, then it was obvious that they were very, very uh, biased and very prejudiced, and, um, and it was kind of like a hate word. Yeah. And uh, I understand how things evolved, and I understand the concept of giving, of using a word to take its power away from it. But I know the people my age, there's still a lot of people that have difficulty with it, you know, when they hear it, you know, and, and stuff that how today people in our community have embraced it as mm -hmm. a, almost a, as a catch-all in some ways. But um, there's a lot of people to, that are older that, you know, that are in their, their 50s, 60s, 70s that have a hard time embracing that word. 
Yeah, it's interesting because now, I mean, as far as I, I've i known coming out, I came out in maybe nine years ago, ten years ago now. Um, queer it was being used as, and still is, as like an identity. Like, I identify as queer. And it's just interesting to see that evolution of like, this was a derogatory term, and now we have like this reclaiming of what it is. Yeah, I think that's, that's very true. Um, it's just like I know, um, you know, having been in sports, and stuff, and also in the music business, you know that I I know uh, people of color use the N word, hmm. and I've they've told me before that it's because it strips the power. It can't be used against them if they're using it with each other. So it has a, a, a dual purpose. You know, they can they can you can speak with it within your your community or your lifestyle or your identity. Uh, yet in some ways, if it's used by somebody else, it may not be. So I think it's, it's I think it's still in an evolutionary stage. Yeah, absolutely. So when you were, what did you say, seven years old? Or when did you watch that movie? Oh, I think, I, you know, I don't remember the exact, but I think it was like seven or eight. Oh, gosh. It was, um... I mean, because at seven and eight, I'm just trying to think of where I was mentally there. I The distinction of, like, again, like sexuality and gender identity, did that all become clear to you in that moment? Or was it just like a catalyst and later on you, you were able to understand that for yourself? No, it's it actually in that moment. It was wow. like, I mean, and it was kind of shocking. I mean, I can remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, you know, I mean, that's, that, you know, that's how I identify, you know, that's, that's something I can relate to. And what did you tell your parents? I didn't. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I carried that secret with me for probably the next 20 years. Wow. At least. Um, did your yeah. parents ever find out or did you ever come out to them in any way no unfortunately you know that was the one reason my mom passed away when i was 17 okay, okay. Uh, you know uh, back in 1972 uh, before i got out of high school and that was before i really totally embraced i was still in my uh i prove my masculinity phase you know with oh, my sports God. and everything else um in the early uh part of the 90s i was pretty much living from from 89, or actually from about 87, I think it was, I pretty much was living like a dual life. You know, mm. publicly, uh, you know, I was Pat. Uh, you know, privately, I was Katie, you know, and I was hanging in two different, two different communities. Uh, you know, the uh, BDSM community, uh, the leather community, uh, going out to, you know, dance clubs where I could dress and feel myself. I always felt like I was putting on a uniform or something, but I, you know, I was in the corporate world for a while, and you know, that I was always a, a three-piece suit type of thing, and I always felt like it was a uniform or a costume. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I didn't really come out um, until just at, fully until after my dad passed away. And I was about to tell him, and I didn't because um, he got diagnosed with cancer at that point. Uh, and it's the one thing in my life I, re I, I look back on and regret because prior to that at a Christmas he gave me this little necklace a, a really you know nice little um, a necklace with a little stone on it so it's like definitely feminine mm -hmm. and uh, and I'd always been androgynous since high school I'd always had my hair long you know when I started working when I left the corporate world started working in the music business I had my fingernail painted black I had I dressed very androgynous and stuff, uh, did the earring, did eye makeup, and uh, 
I think it was his message to me trying to tell me that he knew or he was okay oh. with it. But when he got diagnosed and I, I wrestled with the thought of what if he's not? Do I want to disappoint him? Because that, that was a big guilt in my, for me coming growing up. He said, am I going to disappoint my family? Am I going to disappoint my friend? And I, you can ask me what caused that. I couldn't tell you. But I just felt like you know, I wasn't going. I wasn't going to be accepted, and I wasn't going to be. I was going to let people down, so I chose not to. Hmm. And then after he passed away, I have always wished I had said something to him, and I didn't. I mean, for somebody listening right now, and maybe going through that same situation, like not knowing. I mean, if you were going and talking to yourself back then, what would you tell yourself? I would probably ask my, myself a question as far as like, what makes me think that he knows and what makes me think that he doesn't? And if I would have really seriously asked myself both those questions, I would have come to the conclusion that he probably has some idea because uh, the necklace I got would not be something you give your son. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so I look back on it, it's pretty obvious, but you also have to uh, face your fear. The reason I didn't wasn't necessarily, if I get down to the core of it, it was my fear of rejection. It was my fear of, you know, having him disappoint me, have him disappointed. And it wasn't, I, was, I think, looking back on it, it wasn't something that I had, I think I told myself that it was for his good because You're I didn't want him bringing that. But it was yeah. really, when I look back on it, I think I admit that it was more about how I was going to feel if I wasn't accepted or how I was and and stuff. So I would say to, to advise anyone if you're in that situation, step back and, and and step outside of yourself a minute and, and ask yourself some serious questions. You know, yeah. what may, what why should you, why shouldn't you? Is this for you or is this for the other person? Yeah. So uh, what was, I mean, was your father passing away the turning point then where you said, finally, it's time to come out? <laughs> oh, gosh. No, actually, I wasn't. Um, I continued to to um, live that, that that double life. And I got a little bit deeper into the, the kink world and started working professionally. And uh, one of the dominants that I was working with uh, I was still in the I was in the music business, and I invited her out to one of the shows uh, that was that I was going to, and there she ended up talking to some of the people that I knew while I was dealing with the bands and stuff like that. And the next day, we showed up, you know, uh, at the dungeon that we had rented over in uh, space in Glendale, and she goes, "I got to share something with you." Uh, I go, "Yeah, what? I think I might have outed you." Because I kept referring to you as Katie, and there we go, who? And then that night, I actually came to the realization that my secret is now burdening other people. Oh, wow. And I thought, you know, this is not fair to put my friends in a situation that I've shared this with, the burden of having to keep that secret. So I thought, I'm just going to go ahead and, and come out and... I had bands I was managing, uh, I was dealing with record companies, so I sat down and I wrote a letter to the record companies and all of them, and then I got a hold of my bands and uh, my, told them, and my a really good friend of mine, who was like really, really macho, right? <laughs> um, 
I thought he was going to just blow it. You know, I thought he's just not going to accept this. So I thought the best way to tell him is I'm going to go to a public place. Let's go to lunch. <laughs> so we go to lunch and I had, I showed him a picture and he looks at it and he goes, oh, so you like to cross dress? And I'm like, well, it's a little bit more than that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I came out to him as being trans and um, a pre-op and that I was going to follow my, that path. And he was like, well, that's great. You know, I'm really happy for you. And he had been trying to get me to, to share, get moving to get an apartment and stuff. And I told him that the reason we didn't do it was because I was so afraid that, you know, he just wouldn't deal with it, right? Yeah. And, that, uh, and he was like, oh, man. He, he, you know, he said, that's, that's crazy. If you would have told me, he says, you know, when I was bugging you about coming on over to the pool, I would have got you a one-piece. He says, if anybody <laughs> ever screws with you, tell them and I'll kick their ass. They were totally wow. supportive. The record companies wrote me letters back and said, congratulations, we're happy that you're uh, following your heart and, and going to live the life that you feel that you need to live. And uh, in my bands, when I, you know, I, I thought I need to tech them, I'm managing bands. I, I'm mm -hmm. responsible for their career. So I sat down with them and basically tried to play it a little bit light, like, um, you know, I do a little bit more than, than you know, publish a magazine and do this and that and and uh, kind of beat people for a living. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> what? <laughs> you a, like a hit person or something? I'm like, no, no, I'm a dominatrix. And I'm like, oh, how cool. <laughs> you know, and everything went cool, really well. Yeah. So, you know, the lesson to learn in that is sometimes that we are our own worst enemy. Yeah. I've had all this thing built up in my mind about um, this rejections I'm going to get from my friend. And the one statement that, that I heard a couple of times that has stuck with me to this day is that um, is your, my friend that said, you know what, you're my friend and, and we care for you because of who you are, not what you look like. It's the inside, not oh. the outside. And you're still the same person. And that opened up a world to me. And that's the advice I've been giving to people for the last 25, 30 years, is that, um, you know, be genuine, be authentic, be yourself. And you know what, if you have to come out and you're, you are genuine and you've been authentic and you're, you're doing, living your life the right way and you're a real friend, they'll stick with you. Yeah, yeah, wow, that's so powerful. And like how blessed you were to have friends that were real friends that just didn't have you around for the exterior you know? yeah well i i'm a big believer in karma mm -hmm. okay I, I really believe that you know in what you receive out of life is what you put into it and uh i my whole life i've tried to do nothing but the right thing i've never really screwed anybody over i've done a lot of fundraisers i've been supportive with people and my karma I think coming back is that my friends accepted me. I was not, didn't go through the rejection. My family, which I, um, my ex, and I've got three kids, mm. uh, all accept me and have loved me and are totally supportive of it. And that is worth the world to me, you know. So being being that authentic person and and having a philosophy of hey you know whenever i give you you receive through giving mm -hmm. so whenever i can give to my community or my friends or my family and stuff you know in the, in the as far as love and you know loyalty and things and that's what i've gotten back and there, you can't put a price i would choose that over all the money in the world mm -hmm. or anything 
Now, I couldn't help but notice you expressing the concern, like, with the bands and everything. And I think some people listening today who are, like, born from my generation might feel like, oh, what's the problem? Like, you put it on <laughs> Facebook, and it's not a big deal. But, like, at that point in time, that could, like, ruin someone's career, right? Like, Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... um. It, probably not as much, but again, it wasn't very prevalent back. You know, you get yeah. into late late 80s or early 90s um, that even in the music business, I mean, when, when Boy George came, when Boy George in the 80s would be accepted a lot differently than he would be today. Yeah. Okay, there was a big backlash with, with that and that androgynous look and, and stuff. I mean, uh, I also dealt with with clubs like the Whiskey and the Roxy and Gazari and the Troubadour, which were more of a hard rock, heavy metal, mm-hmm. okay? And that um, that look didn't quite meld with, with the look of androgynous and, you know, some of the uh, rock of the 80s, so those types of bands yeah. that you saw that were a little bit more um, uh, gender fluid, that were not hung up on masculinity or femininity like mm-hmm. real hard rock and, and and heavy metal was right so you know when you're in that environment that's the environment that you you relate to okay and that's the environment that I was dealing with so I wasn't in the the cure and Depeche mode environment where right. things like sexuality was a little bit more fluid and acceptable uh, it was more masculinity geared or, or focused, I should say. So that kind of influences your thought and you know the crowd that you're hanging out with and dealing with. Uh, but one thing that did do when I did come out to everybody, <laughs> being in the music business, I didn't shock anybody. Yeah. Because of my long hair and the black nails and the eyeliner and the androgyny, the the response to most of my friends was, oh. Oh, now it makes sense. <laughs> Didn't know if you were just like goth or glam or gay oh, yeah, or yeah. what, but now it all makes sense. <laughs> so I think I might have done him a favor. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so at what point now, across this timeline of so much already, did we get married and have children? Um, well, actually, I, when I got, I got married in, um, in 1980, and I was still in the closet. I didn't. Um, I didn't come out to my wife at that time uh, for about five years. Okay, but I, I mean, okay. I did come out with uh, as far as like the cross dressing. Okay, and, and and to be honest, before I went to see a therapist in uh, uh, in 1989, I was really convincing myself that I'm I'm not. I'm not gay, I'm not trans, I'm really I'm just mm. into cross-dressing, and this is just a kink, you know, a uh, turn-on. Uh, so, you know, we, we played sexually, we, we played with a little bit of the spanking stuff, we played with gender uh, roles and things, and uh, later on in our marriage, I, uh, I did come out and tell her that it was, I think it was a little bit more, and at first she was a little bit shocked, but she was pretty, seemed pretty cool with it, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was, Weekends, like, hey, let's go to the mall and, you know, get some fabric and make you a new dress or something. And, I mean, it was great. But then, uh, and I loved her to death for it, but it was something she was trying to deal with. But, you know, a couple of years later, she basically said, you know, I, 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 I can't do this. I can't relate to this, really. I'm trying. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, 
what I did is I took all my clothes and I packed them up in a box and sealed them up, put them up in the closet. And I thought everything was cool. And actually a couple of months later, you know, she was upset and, uh, and disclosed to me that, you know, this is not, I can't deal with it. I mean, you didn't get rid of them. You, know, you just put it away. It's, I mean, it's not gone. Yeah. And, you know, it became obvious to both of us that this was not just a pastime. This was not something I was just doing for fun or anything. And we started to kind of grow apart a little bit. And in uh, 1989, uh, we went ahead and separated. Uh, and shortly thereafter is when I started, you know, living full, full-time basically, well, except the, in the business part. 90% of the time I was, I was living in my, my true self. And uh, in the, uh, what year was it now? When, I don't remember the exact year. I think it was like 93, 94. I got a call and my son and my daughter wanted to come down and stay with me for spring break because they had moved up to Sacramento. And I thought, oh my God, you know, I've been on hormones. Um, what am I going to do now? I There's no hiding I, it now. No, and I don't want to say no because I don't want them to think I don't want them. Okay? Yeah. So I sat down and I wrote this big old long letter to my ex and uh, coming out and explaining the whole thing, what, what it had been, where I am, where I'm going, and, uh, and sent it up there. And then sent it snail mail. <laughs> <laughs> and waiting for a couple of days is like, oh my, like living in a minefield. And, uh, but I finally got a call a couple of days later. She said, I got your letter. And I, okay. And she goes, I'm really happy for you. I'm glad you're following, doing what you got to do. I've known for 10 years that you was going to go there. You know, you know, I'm glad you finally realized it. <laughs> yeah. And I, so I said, well, thank you. And uh, what about the kids? And they're like, oh no, they're not surprised. They, they knew. So I felt like I was the last one to know. And <laughs> but they came the down. They, they lived with me for the next year. Wow. And, um, and then in 2000, uh, we actually got back together, tried to put it together, and uh, which was going really well. But we really grew into two different directions. I mean, um, she got into more of the gaming type of stuff. You know, she was hanging out in the, in the gaming gamers kind of crowd yeah. uh, and that's not something that I had any interest in and uh, she met someone and uh, so we decided to get the di get divorced and since then she's remarried and I've re I, re I remarried I'm married my current wife uh, Genesis or Jill mm -hmm. uh, in August 2017 congratulations and thank you it's uh you know we've been together since like 2007 but after I had my scare with cancer in 2015, you know, when I thought it'd be nice to to go ahead and get married, so we did. And uh, to this day, my 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 daughter works with me at the studio. Uh, she handles all the registration for DomCon. You know, my sons are very supportive, and I just feel very blessed. You know, I know a lot of people in my situation have gotten shunned by their family, yeah. by their friends. They feel suicidal they feel um uh just lost and i've i've offered myself many times to uh as support to to talk to anybody who wants to reach out that's having any difficulty because there really is a a positive way to do it and uh and to accept yourself i finally went to a therapist in 1989 because uh i just or maybe it was 88. I don't, 
It was like, I need some answers. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I was in denial still, and um, my therapist, who was great, but at times I wondered if he was actually on my side, because they, they can be pretty tough answering, asking you the right the questions, because mm -hmm. you gotta face things. But I, um, I came to realize, the, you know, to be, being honest with myself, and, uh, and my therapist said, you know, when you come out to people, it's going to be, uh, they're either going to accept you for who you are or who they want you to be. And meanwhile, you're living your life trying to be the person that everybody wants you to be rather than the person you are. Wow. And so I, that's when I let everybody know. And, you know, it was like lifting the weight of the world off it because I realized, you know what, if somebody has a problem with what I'm doing or who I am, it's not my problem, it's theirs. They don't need to be a part of your life. Yeah, exactly. And, but... Again, when you're, and I don't know if you went through this, but at, at my age and growing up through the thing, you know, you, there's that fear of, um, of rejection because it's, just, it's still, like my daughter and, and my son today, they'll look at like, what? Why would you think something like that, you know? I mean, it's so deep-rooted. I think when, um, I mean, I didn't come out until I was like 20, 19 or 20, which nowadays is like, old like to yeah, come out yeah, like, I know. like there's like 10 you know like 15 year olds like coming out and stuff like I, I i could never imagine um but it's just like it's so deep rooted to the point like now i'm out my family knows my friends know but like anytime i step into a new space for some reason my head kind of clicks back into that like oh you have to be like example for for work you know um i'm a violinist i i teach violin and I remember the first time like stepping into that space I was like I'm gonna have to like hide the fact that like my partner lives with me and that uh, that I'm gay and like I have like a thing outside that says the bullet bar like in my living group like oh my god and I remember like like waking up in the middle of the night like having anxiety about it and then I thought who the fuck cares like <laughs> in reality who no, nobody, nobody cares. And if they do, then like they don't need to be a part of your life, you know. And you spend so much time and energy worrying about what people are going to think. Yeah. And you have no control over that, really. And it doesn't really mm. matter. Yeah. At the end of the day, you you're not responsible for anybody else's feelings or like how they react to who you are. I mean, all you can do is is be you, you know. And if any of your experiences are like mine, you find out that all the way, all the things you're worrying about how they're going to react, that's not the way they react. It's like no big deal with them. <laughs> it's true. I, I have a picture of, uh, of myself in full leather and I posted it on Instagram one time. And um, this is like one of the first things I ever posted with like full leather, like really like, oh, I wonder what people are going to say. And I forgot that one of my violin students followed me and I was like, oh, shit. She liked it and says, hey, Mr. Bullet. Hey, oh, like, <laughs> and the next time she came to her lesson, she's like, oh, that's so cool. Blah, blah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I guess I, I didn't think that. I don't know. You, you just a lot of times things are catastrophized in your own brain and you just have to kind of let it out or talk it through. And uh, it's usually not as bad as you imagine it to be. That's so true. Yeah. OK, so let's talk a little bit about your kink life because i know you said like you were getting into kink and everything when was the first time that you experienced kink um i think when being married when we first got married you know we picked we got, we got a book it was um 
what was it? The, the Joy of Sex, I think it was. And there was one chapter in there about S and M, and that was that was like, oh, this is really cool. And we and we uh, we read it and looked at it and thought, this is going to be neat, you know. And then inside, I'm thinking, this is great, you know. I love bondage. I thought this is going to be really cool, uh, you know. It talked about cross dressing and bondage and all these things. So I was like, yeah. And so you know, we started playing and, and dabbling in that stuff, and uh, uh, it was. It was great, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no idea that there was a whole world out there of other people that really did anything more than this. Uh, you know, because again, growing up, if um, if you went to the library to look up anything about kink or anything about gender or anything, you might be able to find two or three books, and every one of them told you that it was a mental illness uh, and yeah. stuff. That's another reason that it was so hard to come out on any of these things. But um, I remember, you know, we were, it was, it was enhancing our sex life, it was exciting, you know, we, we were pushing the limits at that time of our, the boundaries and of uh, normalcy, at least how we viewed it. Uh, so I went to a, uh, a bookstore, adult bookstore, you know, uh, to see what, if there were other, other books on it and like that. And I came across this, this book that said, uh, I don't remember the exact name. Something like Kinky Contacts or something. And I was looking through this magazine. It's all ads. And I'm thinking, oh my God. You know, there's uh, there's things I've read in like variations and penthouse yeah. and stuff. Those those kind of things with some of these stories. But this really is this, this is not like people writing letters to an editor. There's a lot of stuff here. So, you know, I bought it. <clears throat> and since there was no not an internet at that time, really, you wrote a letter the ad that you, that you liked and it had like a code on it so you'd put it in an envelope and you'd write the code on the outside and then you would put that inside another envelope and send it to the publisher and they would open it up look at the code put a forwarding on it send it to the other person and then they would contact you so you know you send this out and about two weeks later you're gonna hear back <gasps> wait, <laughs> you, oh God, wait a second so this was like snail mail grinder or... yeah yeah and um Oh, wow. And so I started corresponding with a few people, and uh, and one of them in Orange County, this woman, you know, we started talking on the phone, and uh, she said to me, she says, well, I'm having a birthday party this weekend, if you, and I'd like you to come, but you got to promise me that you don't tell anybody we haven't met yet, because, mm. you know, we're, we're not supposed to, you know, nobody's supposed to come that hasn't already been met and stuff, but we've been talking a lot on the phone, I feel really comfortable, so we went to this party, and it started off like a normal birthday party, you know, with dinner and cake and stuff, and then it started getting a little thin, <laughs> and I asked her, I said, did everybody leave? And she's like, oh no, they're out in the playroom. She says, so her and this other woman, Crystal, uh, they took me outside, and they said the garage is kind of made into a playroom, and um, so we want to. I'll show you what's going on. They open the door, and oh my God, there's this whole dungeon in there, oh and God. there's like five scenes going on. And the first scene I see is this: this woman is suspended upside down, and they're dripping candle wax on her. Okay, wow. we're in some private areas. Screaming like bloody murder, like being dismembered. I'm thinking, oh my god, I got to get out of here. You know, this is not, this is not okay. I'm, if I get busted, how am I going to explain this? And they're like, settle down. Everything is cool. Everything is consensual. There's no drugs. There's no alcohol. Just, just, just watch. 
And when the scene was done, there was such aftercare and embracing and stuff. And I was like, wow, this is, this is not what I thought. It, you know, it, it was, you know, because I mean, I, I enjoyed the bondage stuff, but S&M and, you know, uh, whips or, and paddles, all the, you know, I was like, no, I didn't think that would interest me at all. Yeah. So I, th- I thought, I got I to learn a little bit more about this. So that was my step into the community. They took me to a, um, a group called Janus, uh, which was a, a branch of an organization started in San Francisco. Later on, be- uh, Janus split up and became Threshold. Uh, but they took me to Janus, uh, started learning some things. I was taught by some people in the leather community that uh, you need to start at the bottom. So I've been dominant my whole life, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so went to a, p- a couple of parties and for my birthday one night, they said, oh, can you give your birthday spank? It's like, nope, nope, not in the pain, don't want to do any of that. And then, you know, nope, uh-uh. Finally, they kept going, so I said, okay, okay. And that spanking changed my life. That spanking mm-hmm. was that it was kind of stingy, but not enough to say stop but they would do some caressing and it was very sensual and erotic. And um, I thought, wow, maybe this is my balance in life. You know, maybe maybe I'm not dominant in everything. Maybe this is my, my balance. So for the, for the next few years, I was quote, learning from the bottom. And they told me that even if you're going to top or if you're going to bed, we, you still need to learn how to do these things. So mm-hmm. They taught me floggers, they taught me whips, they taught me violet wand, they taught me candles, all these things. I said, because if you're gonna play with somebody, you need to know what you're doing so that you know that they know what they're doing. Right. That you can recognize that they're not doing something that's safe. So um, I kind of got mentored in that by a couple of um, people. I got collared and was collared slave for a while. Uh, taught me a lot of things like self-discipline. Uh, uh, got I was used to be very, very introverted. I mm-hmm. mean, you couldn't get me to get up in front of people and talk for the world. Now I'm getting hundreds <laughs> of people lecturing <laughs> classes in university. So it, it got me over a lot of uh, fears in my life. And uh, it was just an amazing experience. And one day my, my dominant said to me, we're gonna go to a party and uh, let's switch. And honestly, it was like, oh, fuck. You know, uh, I, I love the subspace. I love yeah. that euphoric feel. And it was like, oh. But we went, we switched. I did, and it was like a light bulb went on. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> this is really where I belong. That top space is really where I belong. Mm-hmm. The subspace is really deep, but the top space, that adrenaline rush, that focus, that intensity mm-hmm. was all that I identified with. So the collar came off later that night. <laughs> <laughs> and the dynamic changed, and in the last 25 years or whatever, it's been that uh, whenever we played, he's bottomed to me. <laughs> That's so amazing that like a single spank could like change your life because it just seems like <clears throat> yeah, had you like you came out, you accepted yourself for who you are, um, like you told all your you know friends, family, and work, and and like yeah, that's all great, but then comes like now what and you begin to discover who you really are like on a deep level by stepping out of your comfort zone and experiencing things that you never thought you could or would and now like here you are like what 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 is maybe one of the biggest lessons you learned about yourself through that whole 
journey of kink? Uh, let's see. I think um, is oh, that's a t- that's actually a kind of tough one because there's there's been so many. But I think um, just learning that things are not always as they appear. Mm-hmm. I mean, I looked at spanking as being painful. Okay, I mean, I related it to. I think I might have gotten spanked once in my life growing up. My parents were not like a disciplinary type of people. They were more like teaching type of uh, thing, you know, explaining why it was wrong and things. Uh, So I associated this with like, this is going to be an unpleasant, painful experience. And it taught me that just, it may look that way, but it's not. It wasn't pain. Okay. It, It wasn't something that I was like, oh, I can't wait for this to stop. I related it to, and this is what I tell some of the students when I, t- when I become a guest speaker at some of the universities. It's like getting into a, a shower and you turn the hot water up and it's a little bit hot, but not enough to turn it down or get out. And then you get used to it and you turn it up a little bit more mm-hmm. and it's, oh, uh, and then it starts to feel good. <clears throat> That's what my experience was like with the spanking. It wasn't just bam, pain. It was a buildup. Right. And... I actually look back and the people, the people use that to, the the excuse to do doing a birthday spanking because it wasn't bam, bam, bam like you would do a traditional birthday spanking. I think it was their opportunity to show me that this is not what you think it is. Mm -hmm. But we're going to give you an experience and teach you. Right. And that's what it did. It was like, wow, this is not what I thought it was going to be. I did not envision this. I mean, I've been fighting this and not wanting to do this for the past couple of months. Oh, my God. And opened up a whole new world to me now. I think what's <laughs> so interesting about, like, especially the subspace, um, is that, like, there are things that you never thought you would be interested in or do. Or you look at other people do and you're like, oh, God, like, I would never do that. That's so ridiculous. And then you're taken to a place by someone or some environment or whatever it is where you feel the ability to like kind of open up a little bit and when you experience those things that you thought you never could or would it's almost like an out-of-body experience because you're like looking at yourself like somehow from the outside in and being like I can't believe like I can't believe that this is happening right now like I can't believe that I'm enjoying this Exactly. You know, like it's, that's so true. And and when you, what I've learned like that is that, and it's just the opposite too. Sometimes you can have this fantasy that in your mind that oh I can't I wish I could try it. And when you do it, you find out it's really not what mm-hmm. you thought it was going to be. And there's yeah. things that you think you would never like or never try or never want to do that when you do. Like I'm really good with single tails, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember being at a party. Um, years ago out at Dragon's Gate in Orange County before it closed down and I was doing a single tail scene on somebody and this woman came up to me afterwards she goes oh my god that was so it's like like poetry in motion and it was so beautiful and thank you for that for allowing me to watch that scene Uh, and she goes "Uh, but I don't think I could ever do that and I I said why and she says because I I pain I said I can make it feel like my finger hitting you on the back okay Mm -hmm. So I, she, I said, if you want to try it, don't, you know, you don't have to do cuff. You're like, just turn around and I'll, she said, so I started doing it. She's like, oh my God. Next thing you know, she pulls her top off, <laughs> you know, and I'm doing, then she turns around, let me do it front. And she's like, oh my God. And th- since that night, okay, she, she's moved out of the area now, but a few years ago, but she used to come every weekend and that oh. she was like, oh my God, I love that. It's so wonderful. But she, when she first saw it, 
the perception of of being hit with a whip was like oh my god i could never do that absolutely not yeah yeah, yeah exactly it's magical mm-hmm. it's magical and you know and well, i guess i mentioned earlier you know i was very introverted growing up and very shy very quiet and when i was submissive you know just like a if I went out to a dance club, I wasn't going to be the first one out in the dance floor, okay? <laughs> right. But going, you know, when we would go out to some of the part in this party, and these parties, the, there were the, there were no dungeons like this, mm-hmm. not at all. Every like like Jan's threshold, every four months would rent a building, and go in at eight o'clock in the morning, start setting it up, bringing equipment in from storage, and they have a play party, and then tear it all down, bring it back to storage. And it was like every four months, so you had people whose home had, had little playrooms in their homes, like their garage or, or a spare bedroom. And that's where you had your little parties every week. And there was a place in uh, Orange County in Costa Mesa, they called the Kinkplex, because there were three people in this townhouse section that, that were all kinky and they all had a, a dungeon room. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes on the weekend, people go in there and go, you know, switch back and forth from the different townhouses. But when we would go to these parties, okay, and everybody starts socializing or whatever. My dom would be, okay, let's start. And I'm like, oh, God, no. You know, everybody's going to be watching and feel so embarrassed. But, you know, two minutes after you start, everything goes away and you don't even realize anybody's watching or anything. And yeah. it, it kind of took me out of my shell a little bit too, which I never would have done on my own. Yeah. Well, let's talk about um, dungeon spaces. I mean, you are the owner of Sanctuary, LAX, how did that come about? I mean, were you part of another dungeon and you started your own or like, what was that like? Well, back in 96, um, I met this woman and she was going to open up a, a play space and she asked me if I wanted to go in with her. And it was, um, we had a three level townhouse in Glendale and uh, we neither one of us lived there, but it was just dungeon space. The second floor had um, two bedrooms on it and the top floor had one bedroom and we set it all up. We told the owners and uh, managers that it was, we did erotic photography and they were okay with that. So, um, you know, we did that for like a year and a half and the, they had a problem with, with the plumbing that when mm. they built it, right, they let, they didn't put the right drainage in on the patio. So every time it rained, the water would come through the sliding glass door and soak the carpets and everything. Oh, wow. So they decided to sell the complex. And the new owners, they had the new owners, and they came in to do a tour. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So they came in and, they, you know, the, the downstairs looked fine, kitchen, living room thing, but then they went up sec- the sec- upstairs to the second floor and the third floor and came down and looked at it and said, we are not going to renew your lease. <laughs> um, you know, because and, of all of the BDSM stuff yeah, around. Yeah. Wow. I mean, we had soundproofing on the walls. We had crosses and, you know, and 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 socks and suspension and floggers <laughs> and everything hanging on the walls. Wow. Even though you know bondage table, we tried to you know we tried to you know throw a sheet over the bondage table, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we couldn't hide it all. So um, at that point. Uh, I started, I'm talking to uh, a mistress in Hollywood named Alex Black, and she had a dungeon that she called Pandemonium on the corner of Gardner and Santa Monica Boulevard. So I started working with her for a little while, and uh, after about, oh, six, seven months, I, uh, I got a call from Mistress Omega, 
and she had said to me, oh, my, my, a friend of mine, Mistress Nicole, and I are going to open up a space in Reseda, and would you be interested in, in coming in with us on it three ways? And uh, if so, can you come out and let's talk? So we went out and we had lunch, and we discussed and decided to open up the space in Reseda, on Reseda Boulevard, um, and that was in 1999. Wow. I, about a year into it, one of them who was re, um, traveling from like Oxnard or something said that the travel is too much. So she mm. backed out of it. And my other partner said she couldn't afford to pick up her. So I picked up her part of it. So I had now had two thirds and my other partner had a third. And about a year after that, <clears throat> um, her and her husband were trying to have a kid and she got pregnant. So she worked until she was uh, showing. Mm-hmm. And then she said, you know, she was going to, so I, now I had the whole thing. I had uh, um, the space and receipt, and I had that until 20, uh, 20, in 2010, where our current location, that, that, that space and receipt was about 1,600 square feet. Was that also called Sanctuary? Yes. Or? Okay. Yep, that was. I'm so mad I wasn't old enough, because to... I, in 2010, I was graduating high school, but what's funny is, and I think that I'm thinking of the same area. Is it across the street from Sea Friends? Yes. Okay, so my first L.A. apartment was across, like, down the street from Sea Friends. So that was, like, my watering hole. Had I just been there a few years earlier, I would have probably stumbled across Sanctuary. Yeah, and if you would have said something in the bar, many times we had people come in and say, you know, I'd have a knock at the door and somebody going, is this a dungeon? <laughs> I'm like, who's asking? And they're like, well, I was over at the bar talking with some friends you know, about kink and stuff. And they said, well, you know, there's a dungeon right across the street. That is such a perfect location. <laughs> it was right next to Captain street. Jack's. And yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, right almost directly across. It was a black building. How cool. And uh, so in 2010, uh, our the location where we're at now by LAX, that used to be uh, called Passive Arts. Okay. And, and that was also a dungeon, a uh, pro dungeon and play space and stuff. And that uh, the owner, he had, he fired a maintenance guy. And that guy got really mad, and it turned out to be a case of, um, uh, you know, workplace. Not, anyway, make a long story short, he came back. He was angry, got fired. He came back one morning and um, shot and killed John, the owner. No way. And um, Coda. The, he had he Coda was a wolf, and uh, he shot and killed Coda. And to try to cover it up, he set the place on fire. Wow! And that um, so I got a call that morning about oh my God, something's on the news. It looks like Passive is uh, on fire, and John was murdered. You know, so K and X is calling me and everything. Because I mean, I'm out at that point. Everybody knows who Mr. Cyan is, and I, I'm talking to him and. Uh, about a month later, I get a call from the estate. And uh, I had been doing DomCon at the Hilton, and I was close friends with John. I supported Passive Arts. Uh, we did the DomCon play party and fetish balls at Passive Arts. And uh, the estate called me, and they said, um, we'd like to meet with you. Uh, and so they said, um, I met with them. They said, you know, are you interested in taking the space? And I said, no, I couldn't do that. I mean, I might, I just... I couldn't do that. I was too close friends with John, and I, I just can't see how that would do it. I, I feel like I'm, 
benefiting in some way from his demise or something. Yeah. And they said to me, I said, well, we've got a couple of people that want to take it, but they don't have experience. They don't know what they're doing. And they said, you've, got it, you've had a dungeon for 15 years or so. You've got, um, uh, you worked with John, okay? You are a pro. You work with pros. And there's nobody that's going to be as qualified as you to keep that going. And if John was alive, there'd probably be nobody that he would rather take this on than you. So I said, well, wow. I will not, <clears throat> I, it won't be another path that what I'll do is I would like to take, take sanctuary and I will take this space to where the next level in its evolution and try to take it where John would be proud. So wow. they asked me not to um, say anything and they were gonna have the memorial and, the, and you know, which for John and that they, the, the estate wanted to announce it at that point. But it's so funny because during that time, from then until it was announced, I had so many people coming to me with with all this inside info about who was going to take it over. And I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah, these guys, such and such and such. And such. Yeah, everybody was in the know, right? And when they <laughs> had the, they uh, <laughs> when they had the, uh, the memorial, you know, they asked everybody to stand up. And then they did something, you know, my, uh, you know, my, uh, my hair was kind of red then. And they were like, okay, everybody who's, um, you know, wearing this, sit down, everybody who's doing this. Anyway, she kept doing that to eliminating people until I was the last one standing. And then she said to me, okay, this is the person who's going to reopen the space. Wow. And uh, so when we reopened in that the space in uh, May 14th, 2011, and it's 7,100 square feet. Uh, and my philosophy has always been that if we want support from the community, we got to support the community. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of tried to make it as much as we can, not only a working dungeon, but a community center for our, our community. We, do, we have support groups that we hold there that, uh, that we don't charge anybody to come to. Yeah. We do classes, we've got events going on, uh, and it's been great. And the funny thing is we made it through this pandemic, right? Yeah. And yeah. we get this notice um, a couple months ago from our landlord that says he's not going to renew the lease. That, okay. Uh, yeah, after all this, oh. we've been there 10 years. Our first lease was from 2011 to 2016. We renewed it from 2011 to 2016 to 2021. Last thing I ever thought was that, but he said he's trying to refi the, the uh, property. Huh. And because it's an adult business, yeah, they uh, the bank classified as high risk, and they told them they don't want to refi a property with a high risk tenant. Now we've been there ten years, yeah, ready to sign another five or ten year lease, um, made it through the pandemic, and they consider it high risk. That doesn't make any sense. So right right now he hasn't been putting any pressure. We're still we're looking. We mm -hmm. want to stay around the same area, but maybe, and you know. I kind of took the look at it as, oh, well, you know what? Time we closed the book on Sanctuary uh, Reseda and opened up a new chapter in LAX. Maybe it's time to close that chapter. We were, we were 12 years in Reseda, 10 years here. So maybe it's time that we, we open up the next chapter. Yeah. So, you know, things are a little bit, um, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. He's not pressuring us to leave. Um, you know, we're still paying our rent and still doing our events and still operating as normal. And we're still looking, but we, he's not like, get down right now, right, you know, or anything right. like that. 
So, you know, we don't know what the future holds right now. All I know is sanctuary won't go away and it will be back. I mean, it will remain. I just don't know if it's going to be at LAX or Long Beach or, or North Hollywood. Okay. <laughs> I was, um, as you're saying that, I'm like thinking like downtown LA would be so cool <laughs> if we found a place, you know, down in downtown. Because there's, I'm sure there's like huge loft spaces or old like abandoned warehouse kind of situations that would be like totally suitable. I would be a metro right away. <laughs> uh, yeah, we thought, you know, the... I guess I haven't really looked in downtown, you know, but some of the places that I've looked at in downtown were places that I didn't feel like people would feel safe at night. Yeah, okay? uh, that's Or true. parking was a, is, is difficult. Uh, right. You know, a lot of, a lot of um, things to take into consideration. So for me, I think the outside of the sanctuary is just as important as the inside. Right. You know, we want to make it welcoming. We, you know, right now, I think what makes us special, not only in the community, is that we're also involved in the in the non-kink community as mm -hmm. well. You know, we we do things uh, to help our community. The sh the sheriffs know all about sanctuary. The fire department knows. They come in. The sheriffs come in. They keep an eye on things for us. If they tell us if we ever have any problem with them, I let them know. They're very supportive of us. And actually, when when I had my cancer, they did a uh, some the community got together to do a fundraiser for me at Sanctuary. And my doctor wouldn't let me go. He said, you know, because of the chemo and stuff that my white cell count was too low. Yeah. And if I was to catch a cold, it would kill me. Wow. So I, I wasn't able to attend. <clears throat> but I guess there was like three or 400 people and the parking lot was still, and they were parking all the way down Los Angeles Boulevard. And mm -hmm. all the way down as far as like Century. So, uh, Later on the night when it was winding down, the guy that was working our door, Deacon, <clears throat> he offered, hey, you people, you know, I, I'll give you a ride down to your car if you want, because, you know, when we're in heels and everything else. So he was driving people down the street to their car, and he pulled out of the parking lot and gets about 200 feet, and the cops put their lights on, pull him over, and he's like, oh, my God. And so cop comes up to him says um are you coming from sanctuary and he said yeah i work over there and the cops told him i said well tell mr cyan we're rooting for her and pulling for her so mm, wow. and, uh, so you know we've been really really fortunate with having um you know people within our community both kink and non-kink knowing who we are all our neighbors know it's a dungeon <laughs> Yeah, and stuff. So that's what the heartbreaking thing about them potentially having to move. That gives me chills just hearing that. Like, it brings me back to that thought of um, something that Master Joshua always says is um, "people before kink." Yeah, and it's just like, yeah, kink. But what about the the person? What about the whole person? And and that's just so powerful. Well, you know, too. I think. Um, even beyond that too, it, it's the person like like you're, you're alluding to there, mm -hmm. um, because in 2007, I got this um, commendation from the city of West Hollywood, you know, and at the time, you know, I was uh, given an award and got my own convertible in the Pride Parade and everything, <laughs> lunch with the mayor and the whole thing, but you know, the, I got this big on my wall a commendation from the city of west hollywood and it's, and it's to mistress cyan 
Okay. And then two years ago, I got the same type of thing from the city of Los Angeles, and it's to Mistress Cyan. So, mm. you know, I've been Mistress Cyan inside and outside of Kink for almost 20 years now. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot, it's how you present something. If you present something as, hey, this is bad, don't tell anybody, this is what I do, they're going to kind of take it that way. But when you're proud of who you are and what you do and there's nothing wrong with it uh, and you own it, people tend to take it in a positive way. Yeah. It's how you walk with it. Like how, like you said, that the energy that you bring forward with it, that's really powerful. Yeah. Like I remember with munches, people, I mean, when we were doing a munch for this group that I was the president of, you know, I went in there and said, hey, do you guys have a room? We want to do this thing. It's called the Munch. This is what it is. We're not a computer group like everybody else that was doing Munches was going telling them. We're not a computer group. We're a BDSM group. But we also understand about consent. Mm-hmm. And there's not going to be coming people coming in here with leashes and everything else because we respect your other customers. We know that there's people who are not consenting to that. We know that there might be kids in there. We're just, and you know what? When we were able to come in there and do that as just people, the restaurants all of a sudden start dropping their, oh my God, we're worried about this group coming in or something. Yeah, because they're not being all secretive about it. Mm-hmm. And this is who we are. This is what we're going to do. And like take it or leave it kind of thing. And be respectful of others. If you want them to respect you, be respectful of other people as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about DomCon. Um, cause the first time I heard of DomCon was this year when you asked me to be a part of it. <laughs> and I have to tell you, it was, it was a blast. It was fun. And just seeing all kinds of people there and all fetished out and geared out and having a good time, it was, it was awesome. But can you tell us a little bit about, like, what is DomCon, first of all, and how did it start? Okay, DomCon is a... Uh, it's the largest professional and lifestyle domination convention in the world. And it started in 2004. And the way it came about <clears throat> was that around 1999 or 2000, uh, Yahoo Groups was real big, okay, uh, online. And I was in this femdom group. And one day I went to log on and I couldn't get on. Hmm. And so I emailed the moderator and said, I'm having difficulty, it won't let me in. And she said, oh, well, you've been banned. And I'm like, why? Because uh, I, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. And she said, well, you're, you're a pro, and this is for lifestyle. I said, I've been lifestyle a lot longer than I've been pro, and I'm, I'm still lifestyle. Yeah. And she said, well, this is not for pros. So I thought, oh my gosh. This, so I, I thought, I started thinking after all that about the separation in the community and started to realize <clears throat> that a lot of people in the pro community were looking at the lifestyle community as more like hobbyist. Mm. Okay. You know, there are people who do it path and they do it on the weekends for fun and something like that. We're we're we do it as a career and so and in the lifestyle where people were looking at pros as well, you know, they only do it for the money and you know, it's all about you know their latex and their look and and, and you know and uh, and making money. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to try to I'm going to do an event that kind of brings those together. Uh, and just about the time that I started to plan that, I was at an event and somebody came up and invited me to something going on in San Francisco. I won't say the name of it, but it was an event that was going to be a domination convention. And I thought, oh, somebody's already doing it. Oh well. So 
you know, it was like going to be like seven months later. So I went, and it was a disaster. I mean, it was <laughs> it was a total disaster. And I left there going, I know they're never going to have another one of these again. Okay, because it was. Just, I mean, you you. You couldn't, I'm not going to mention it because you couldn't make it worse if you tried. Yeah. And then, uh, so I came back at L.A. and um, and thought, well, maybe it's time to think about DomCon again because that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, and I started putting the idea together in 2003. And I announced it in October of 2003. And we were, our first DomCon was going to be in L.A. at the Beverly Garland um hotel here in North Hollywood and uh, and I envisioned it being kind of a, a big local event and within about two months it became a national event I had oh people from all over the country registering and stuff so how did they find out oh well we put I mean we put it online I put it in the Yahoo yeah. group that you know I had a sanctuary group that had something like 3,000 people in it and, okay and so you know we put it in word just kind of spread and uh wow. And then, uh, so we get all these, this attention. And the first one we did went great. It, we, all, we had lots of vendors, we had great attendance, <clears throat> big success. People telling me that this will never work. You'll never get the pros together. The pros are not gonna, they're gonna try to one-up each other. They're going, nobody's gonna share any education ideas. They're not gonna share business or anything like that. And the, you know, and the, problem with the lifestyle and the pros will never work that's what I, I listened to for six months and we pulled it off and after the first DomCon we had um, people online commenting about you know they had lifestyle people commenting that wow I met some of these pros and they were really genuine they're real you know they're it's not all about the money they're really sincere and we had Pro, in the pro community, people talking about, oh, I went to DomCon and I saw this, some of these classes, you know, by these non-pro people that were amazing. I learned some, you know, this and that and stuff. So we kind of opened up dialogue that. between the yeah. two. Wow. And uh, just before the convention, I should step back a little bit, I was in Las Vegas at another convention promoting DomCon. Um, I think it was AdultCon or something like that. And this woman walked up to me and she says, wow, this is a great idea. Have you ever thought about doing the East Coast? And I told her, well, actually, yeah, that our plans are to, at some point, once we get up and running, if we're successful, to do one on, in L.A. and one on the East Coast. And she goes, oh, so have you thought about Atlanta? And I said, no, not at all. <laughs> and she said to me, the only problem with Atlanta is that it's surrounded by Georgia. Okay. So, and she said, I'd like you to come down. I've got a, like a 10,000-foot dungeon down there, and I'd like you to come down and visit. So I went down. And we looked, we saw the space. I met some of the people in the community and said, hey, okay, let's do, let's do Atlanta. And got a hold of the Hilton down there and set it up for that November. Wow. <laughs> and uh, so the 2004 LA was in, uh, in April and uh, Atlanta was in November. And the first two years in LA, we did the uh, Beverly Garland here in North Hollywood. We grew out of it, moved to the Sheraton down by LAX. And they, uh, they, after our first one there in 2006, they said, well, we're not sure your, your event really is for our hotel. Yeah. So we went, we talked to Hilton, and the Hilton said, absolutely, come down, we'll, you know, and 
So we just finished our 15th year at the Hilton. Wow. <laughs> and uh, the first 12 years we did Atlanta. Um, that was a learning experience. We got a whole different community down there, but very good community. And uh, in 2014, <clears throat> we were going to do a our event at the airport at um, in Atlanta uh, at a Sheridan. And two weeks before the event, I got a phone call that says, we have to cancel your event. And it's like, what? It, and we've uh, had inspections and they found mold, black mold. Oh, and God. so they're gonna have they're gonna have to tear some walls out and redo reconstruction. So the, the the hotel's gonna be closed when you do it. But we'll see if we can help you find another one. So within the next three days, we found a, um, a radisson in downtown Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So we went. It was great. Oh my God! It was an amazing show. We <laughs> thinking uh, the hotel loved us. We everybody liked the hotel, the location. Everything was perfect. They said to us, you know. We'd love to have you back next year. So it's great. So we signed a contract to come back in 2015. In June of 2015 is when I got diagnosed with the cancer. Yeah. So here comes November, October, and I can't go. I'm in, still in the middle of treatment. And Dom kind of goes down there, and I get this call from my partner. This is terrible. They changed all the management in the hotel. They are not happy that we're here. You know, they are giving us so much hassle. Okay, they're, they're anything they can do to make this unpleasant. It seems like they're doing. Wow. So, you know, we made it through it, and I thought to myself, you know, it. We we had to find a hotel in Atlanta like four different times because we were growing out of them and everything else. I said, you know what, I'm tired of it. If it's, you know, it. After 12 years, if we're going to look for a new hotel, let's look in either New York, Chicago, or New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So we put it out there, and fortunately, New Orleans uh, came to me and said, we want to talk to you about this. We'd love to have this here. And it was the Astor Crown Plaza on the corner of Canal Street and Bourbon Street in the French Quarter. And so it was like, oh, my God, this is going to be great. And, you know, we went down, and we visited the hotel, and they... Uh, we signed the contracts, and now it's been since 2016. Wow. And we'll be there Halloween weekend this year <laughs> in the French Quarter. Well, my gosh, it's going to be amazing. But DomCon was something that kind of, I felt, grew out of a need for the community. Yeah. And it's now a five-day event. And the first two days, uh, Wednesdays and Thursdays, it's industry-only classes. So we have uh, industry people from all over the world that come in. And those are all those classes. On Thursday night, we kick off with a, uh, re- a dinner and then a red carpet social. And then we do uh, opening ceremonies. And Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, we, we have about 60 classes and workshops. Um, th- this year, we had a few cancellations with vendors because of the pandemic. So we had about 60 vendor booths. Normally, we had about 80. <coughs> and uh, at night, Friday night was a, a play party at the dungeon. Saturday night's a fetish ball. Sunday night is a uh, uh, an after party, play party in the hotel. That we have one of the ballrooms that can converted to a dungeon, and everybody <laughs> who's staying over Sunday night from downtown go down and and we play until midnight in the, in, in the Hilton. Okay, I'm cutting off five days next year. <laughs> uh-huh. 
<laughs> and during the days, we got socials. We've got we got pro dom socials, male dom socials, MX socials, uh, newbie socials, VIP socials. I mean, all for three days. It's almost nonstop from eleven in the morning until about three a.m. Wow. And they are. Uh, it's been great. There's been so much education and things that when I came into this back when I came into this lifestyle, things like uh, like fire play and single tails and things were all considered edge play. Okay, nowadays you go to dungeon, those kind of like mainstream. <laughs> so what's edge play now? I we had a class at DomCon in 2019 that was liquid nitrogen play. <laughs> Oh my God! <laughs> yes, we had actually a scientist that was kinky, and came in and showed how to play, how to do things with liquid nitrogen and incorporate it into your play and sensation and stuff. How fun! So I thought, <laughs> my God, I, there's there's always something to learn. And you know, even StomCon's been very successful because everybody knows there's an opportunity to learn, play safer, learn new things, and experience new people. We've had. As far as the pro community comes, we've had um, people attend from every single continent except Antarctica. <laughs> uh, we've had, I mean, in 2019, we had some uh, from South Africa. We've they've had them from Asia. We've had them, tons from Europe, South America, Central America, Canada, everywhere. And people, everybody comes in. And this, this year, we, we had about, I think, around 1,200, 1,300 people. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I can't help but think of like kind of the full circle of like what DomCon is and what it is like for you in your life and the symbol of like bringing it to New Orleans where you're like originally from. Yeah. I I have to admit that was like, that that was very special to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's really awesome because it's like the, the moment that you were able to accept yourself for who you are, discover yourself and like go through that whole journey it brought you back to where you were from yeah you know? it's yeah. amazing it's um it's it, it's i i feel very blessed you know because i i feel like i'm <clears throat> i'm able to live the lifestyle mm-hmm. that you know most people would dream of you know i um honestly i don't make the kind of money i made when i was in like a corporate world with a 401k and an expense account and company cars and all those things but what I do have is a lot of happiness. I never dread the next day. You know, I never not look forward to, to being at the dungeon or doing doing some sessions or some scenes or teaching people or anything. Um, it's been very rewarding. And what I want one point in my life, uh, and this is something we didn't touch on, but but I'll tell you what I think that one of the big turning points in my life was that in 1986 I. Um, I was diagnosed with glaucoma, mm-hmm. and uh, in 1994, I was classified as legally blind, and so I've been legally blind since 1994, wow. and <clears throat> that was a little bit hard to deal with because here I was thinking to myself, for the next 40 or 50 years, I'm not going to be able to drive. I'm going to have to depend on public transportation or friends, and this, you know, and I. I'm not gonna be able to play baseball anymore. I really can't see well enough for my basketball. I mean, I went through this whole thing about how being depressed yeah. it was. And then in, uh, and they t- told me, well, you know, we got the pressures down, but eventually you're gonna go totally blind, okay? Because we wow. can't. When 95, 96, they came up with some surgeries 
called a tridactylectomy. Um, and I went in the hospital and they did surgeries and came out and said, you know what, uh, we, can't, uh, we can't bring back what you lost, but we stopped it from getting any worse. Wow. So uh, at that point, I was, I was kind of feeling sorry for myself in a way about, I'm, you know, I can't see, I got this, you know, why me? I've got, I'm, de I'm dealing with my, this gender issue, uh, you know, my, now my eyesight, you know, what, what, you know, I feel like, why me? Right. Okay. Uh, and one day I was feeling very, very depressed about it. And I thought to myself, you know, why am I feeling so, so depressed? You know, I, I went down to Braille. They asked me, you know, to go down and do some, you know, and get some counseling down there. And I saw people around there that were much worse than me. They mm -hmm. were walking with canes, so they couldn't, so they completely lost their eyesight. And that was another turning point in my life. It's, it, I, that night, I ended up telling myself, you know, why am I spending this time and energy about what I don't have when I should be focusing on what I do? Wow. And you know, I, instead of being upset about the vision I've lost, I should be very happy about the vision I've got. Mm -hmm. And the uh, and that's been something I've adapted and adopted in my life since then. I'm always looking at the glasses half full. I'm always looking at you know how fortunate I am and how lucky I am. And uh, I feel very fortunate that I've got a family that accepts me. I've got a loving wife. I've got a lifestyle that I live 24-7. I've got collared slaves, I've got submissives, I've got happiness. Um, my cancer's gone and I've been declared cured as of last September after five years. So, you know, I have a lot in my life to be very happy about and I don't dwell on the things that I don't have anymore. A lot of people can't wake up every morning and feel happy about all of those things in their life, being able to live their truth 24-7 and be who they are and have a loving family and have a job that they enjoy going to every day. I mean, you're blessed. And it's really great that like, even in spite of all of the difficulty, you recognize all of that. And again, I think it's like, it's, hey, put out some positive energy. It'll come back to you. You know, um, help people when you can, do the right thing. Um, uh, I feel like the universe is going to reward you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it, it may not be instant and you may not recognize how it's coming back to you. But, you know, but it, just believe in it. Believe in what you're doing. Believe in yourself and try to stay positive about whatever is in front of you and you can overcome it. You can make it. You can make it what you want it to be. Well, I want to thank you again, Mr. Sand, for coming on the show and sharing those words of wisdom with us. Before we go, how can we stay connected with you? How can we reach out? How can we find out more about DomCon and Sanctuary? Okay. Well, um, uh, the website for Sanctuary is sanctuarylax.com. Uh, DomCon is domcon.com, which is D-O-M-C-O-N.com. Uh, my website is uh, mistresscyan at uh, or mistresscyan.com, and my email is mistresscyan at gmail.com. You know, and I always encourage people that if there's anything, any questions or need any direction or like that, to feel free to you know to reach out to me. I always try to find some time to to help people whenever they 
they need it because I remember a time that coming into this lifestyle, you know, none of this started with, with experience. We all started at, at some point and didn't know much. And uh, if I can help somebody with, uh, you know, on their journey, I'm more than happy to do so. Well, I want to thank you again, Mr. Cyan, for coming on the show and just being so open and transparent with me today. As always, you guys, you can find me as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet on Instagram and Patreon and Twitter as Brandon Bullet LA. Thanks again for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay kinky.